Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. As we continue our study of the book of Joshua, we find ourselves in a very familiar, very exciting story in Joshua chapter 3 this morning. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there is a fine line between a great storyteller and an annoying storyteller. Now the two actually have a lot in common. Both like to tell the story slowly. Both like to keep you in suspense. Both often leave you at the end of the story wondering exactly what was the point. Both love details. Oh, the details. And I think this is actually where the difference is made between the great storyteller and the annoying storyteller, it's in, it's in the details. You see, the great storyteller adds all kinds of details in order to make the story better. The annoying storyteller adds all kinds of details just to make the story longer. The great storyteller takes seemingly meaningless details and uses them in an incredible way to bring us to the point of the story. The annoying storyteller takes all these seemingly meaningless details, well, and actually you discover there is no point to the story at all. It's just a story. You know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this before. You have others in your life who may tell stories this way. You know, I got I to tell you this great story about what happened to me at the, at the store on Tuesday. Yeah, I know. I know what you're thinking. Why did I go to the store on Tuesday? It was, it was raining on Tuesday. I don't know why I did that. I always do that. I don't know why I do that. I could have gone Wednesday or Thursday. It wasn't pressing, but I went on Tuesday, and I don't know. It was raining. I got wet. It was great. I wore the wrong shoes. I can't believe that. And Anyway, I, I got to the store. By the way, do you remember James who used to live next door to us when we were kids? I saw him in the produce section. I couldn't believe it. Well, whatever happened to him? You know, I, I never understood. Their whole family just got up and moved one day, and I never, but, but I saw something on Facebook a while back that his brother's having some problems, and I think that the reason they moved, well, of course, his dad, you know, he went off on the deep end, and then the brother, I think, had some problems anyway. You know, you just tell the story. You know what I'm talking about? You just get a few minutes in, and you think, oh, my word, this is never, never going to end, and you know it has no point. Now, let me tell you something about our God. Our God is a great storyteller. And he loves the details. And what you realize when you see the stories that God writes is that every single detail matters, not only in all the stories in Scripture, but even the story of your own life, all of the details matter. And Joshua 3 is a great story. It's a great story with a lot of seemingly unrelated details. But the more you read it and the more you meditate upon it, the more you realize that the point is actually in the details. That it's the details that make the story great. Now, it is a familiar and relatively simple story. You may have spent very little time in church, and yet you're going to know something about this story. It is a huge moment in the history of Israel. 500 years before this moment, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
I'm going to give you all kinds of descendants that outnumber the sand of the seashore, and I'm going to lead you into a great land. And from that moment on, moment by moment, step by step, God is moving his people into the promised land. The other generation right before this could have received the promised land, but because of their unfaithfulness, they were not allowed into the promised land. And here it is, this is the moment. At the end of this chapter, the people of God will have placed their feet into the promised land. They will have crossed the Jordan River. And finally, after all of these generations of promises, they will inherit the land. Joshua 3 is the moment. The mission is clear. It's right there in chapter 1 where the Lord takes Joshua and appoints him as the leader of his people. And he says, here's your mission. Arise and go over the Jordan you and all the people, into the land that I am giving you to the people of Israel. That's it. Get up, go over the river, and take the land that has been promised to you, and this is exactly the moment that it's going to happen. So I want to tell you the the basics of the story, and we'll come back and look at some of the details. But the story is actually quite simple. God takes his people and leads them to the very edge of the Jordan River. It is there where they'll stay for a few days in order to get prepared for the crossing of the Jordan and the entering into the promised land. It tells us that while they're there, God begins to make clear exactly how this is all going to take place, particularly in verses 3 and 4. It says that, that Joshua gathers the people and it says, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. And do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The Lord says, listen, the ark is going to go first, and I want you to wait and don't do anything. But when you see the priest carrying the ark of the covenant, when they get what is about 1,000 yards in front of you, at that moment, and not until that moment, then you start moving. And then the story continues. Joshua says, now listen, tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders among you. You're going to see something incredible. But first, verse 5, consecrate yourself. Get prepared. Be ready for the wonderful work that God is going to do. And I love that phrase, the Lord will do wonders among you. And he is about to. So Joshua tells the priest, priest, it's time to go. Let's go. And they begin to walk. They're headed toward the Jordan River. Now, it is at that moment in which God comes and has a little conversation with Joshua. He says, Joshua, I promised you in chapter 1 that I would be with you the way I was with Moses. And it's about to be evident to everyone in Israel that I'm going to keep my promise. I will be with you. I will demonstrate my power. I will demonstrate my glory. I will exalt you in the eyes of all of the people as the leader that I have appointed as you go. And then the Lord gives Joshua some more details. He says, Joshua, here's the way this needs to work. I I want the priest to take the ark, and they're going to begin moving towards the Jordan. But look what it says in verse 8. It says, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. In other words, he knows that what the priests are going to want to do is they're going to want to begin to move, and then they're going to get to the edge of the Jordan and just stop, because that's the logical thing. The logical thing is not to keep walking into the Jordan But he says, no, we're not going to do it that way. So 
So he tells them to begin to move, and when they get to the Jordan, just to keep walking all the way until you step into the Jordan. And then the Lord tells, I mean, Joshua then tells the people in verse 10, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. I may have gotten all those wrong, but I did the best I could. And you know, none of us know any different. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribe of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. He says, you're going to start moving. Everyone's going to wait. And then when they see you about a 1,000 yards in front of you, at that moment, everyone's going to begin moving. Probably about 2.5 million people all starting to move. And then the priests are going to get to the edge of the Jordan River. And when they get to the edge, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they're going to step their feet in. And at the moment they walk into the Jordan and step their feet in, at that moment, the waters, the Lord says, will part. And then all of the people of Israel will march forward across the Jordan River. He says that's exactly what is going to happen. And it tells us in verse 17... Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Every single one of them went across the Jordan on dry ground, having gotten to the other side of the Jordan, meaning that they are now stepping for the first time into the land that God had promised them. Not only is this a miraculous moment in and of itself, but it's a huge moment in the history of God's people. It is reminding us of the faithfulness of our God who always keeps his promises. Generation after generation, God is going to do what he said he is going to do. He is a promise-keeping God. It is a moment in which God displays not only to the people of Israel, but to all of the watching nations that there is one God who is Lord over all the earth. Remember last week that the spies go in and Rahab says to them, everyone is terrified of you. Everyone knows that the Lord is on the move. Everyone knows that your God is the God of all the nations. And everyone is trembling. Imagine how they're trembling now when the people on the other side of the Jordan are now on this side of the Jordan as everyone has watched the waters part. God is certainly making a statement to his people and everyone else that is watching that there is one God, Lord, and King of all of heaven and earth who rules over everything, and he is on the move. But there's more to this moment than just the crossing of the Jordan. It's significant. It plays a huge moment in the, in the history of God's people but there's more to it than the people just getting over to the other side. There's more to it than the people just getting into the promised land. Because as you know, God is not all about the destination. God is about the process. Whether it be in our lives or in the lives of the people of Israel, God is always about the process. God is always about the moment. God is always about the journey. His goal is not just to get them over. His goal is to get them over. 
while at the same time establishing within their heart certain realities that they're going to have to know when they get to the other side. He's putting deep inside of their whole hearts certain realities that are essential for them if they're ever going to experience life as God intended it. If they're ever going to experience success as God defines it, there are certain realities they're going to have to know. That's what the book of Joshua is about. It's not just about the people of God entering into the land. It's about the people of God experiencing life as God intended it. It's exactly what he wants for you. He wants for you to experience life as he always intended for it to be. Life that was destroyed by sin, yet life that God is restoring through Jesus Christ. He wants you to experience it, and Joshua teaches us how. He wants you to know what it's like to live this life as a success, meaning taking hold of everything that God has for you and not missing anything. And so it is that the same thing he wants for the people of Israel is the same thing he wants for you, and the same realities that they needed to know are the same realities you need to know. And it is those realities that are found in the details. And it is those realities which lead us to the actual point of the story. And so I want you to see that this morning. I want to encourage you to write these realities down. The first reality is this. You are utterly insufficient. I just wanted to encourage you this morning. You are utterly insufficient insufficient. Please write that down, circle it, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you can to make sure it is clear in your notes. You are utterly, in every way, insufficient for the task that God has given you in your life. I find it so interesting at the beginning of this chapter, it says that they came to the Jordan, verse 1, he and all the people of Israel And they lodged there. Do you see those words? They lodged there before they passed over. Verse 2. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and began to command the people. So listen, God removes his people from where they were camping in Shittim a few days before. He then brings them to the edge of the Jordan River. Listen, where all they do is camp out for three days. There's no purpose given. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to why it is that God is doing this, but we do know this, that he takes all of the people, he moves them to sit right beside the Jordan River for three days where they lodge, meaning they put their tents up. They get settled in for a few days. All of the moms, all of the dads, all of the children, all of them for three days. Now, there's another subtle detail that I think helps us to understand why it is that God did this. It's, it's in verse 15. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and this is that moment in which you're dying to see what happens, and then all of a sudden you get a detail which seems to just keep us in suspense and derail the story, but it's actually significant. It's a parenthesis. It says, now, now the Jordan overflows at its banks throughout the time of harvest. And at first you say, well, why does that matter? It matters because of this. The Jordan River was normally a, a fairly small and calm, placid river. But there was one time a year, about a month period of time, in which the Jordan dramatically changed. It changed in width. It changed in depth. It changed in speed. Everything about it dramatically changed. 
And it was at the time of harvest. And the reason was this is because Mount Lebanon was covered in snow throughout the winter, and when the spring began to come, at the time of harvest, all of that snow melted. And when all of that snow melted, it all went one place, it all went down Mount Lebanon, directly into the Jordan River, in which for one month and one month only, this seemingly placid river turned into a raging, overflowing river. The kind of river in which, as you stood beside it, you would feel the weight of the water raging. That if you were to stand at the edge of the Jordan, and you were to look at it, and you were to listen to it, and you would feel it, the one conclusion you'd come to is this. It's not safe. So what does God do? Well, not only does God choose the one moment in which the river is at its most dangerous, but he brings the people to the edge of the river so for three days they can just stare at it. You say, well, why why in the world would, would God do that? Because he wanted reality to set in. He wanted them to look at it for a few days. He wanted them to feel it for a few days. He wanted them to watch and to hear the sound of a raging river so that it became incredibly clear that they were utterly inadequate to cross it in their own strength. He picked this moment and then camped them out so that he could let a mom with a five-year-old little boy and a three-year-old little girl and a six-month-old little baby, stand there for three days with all three of her children and know that at some point in the near future, she has to get those kids across that river. So that all of the dads who feel a certain weight and responsibility to make sure their families get safe for three days can just stand and listen and look at the raging rapids and wonder how in the world they're going to get their families across. He set them there and lodged them there so that deep inside of their souls for three days, hearing every bit of that sound and watching the raging rapids, they might come to this conclusion they are utterly inadequate to do what God had called them to do. Now listen to me. This is what God does. I could give you A thousand instances just like this one. What God does is this. He leads you right to the edge of something he's calling you to do. He leads you right to the edge of a very difficult circumstance. He leads you right to the edge of a diagnosis. He leads you right to the edge of an overwhelming relational situation. And he just camps you out there. And he just lets you sit there for a while without hearing anything and lets you stare at that situation just for a little while until a sense of humility overwhelms you and you come to the conclusion that God wants you to come to, which is this, you are inadequate for the tasks that God has given you. You are inadequate to handle the situations in your life. Until you come to the place that the Apostle Paul came in 2 Corinthians 2.16 when he looks at all of his circumstances and asks this question, who is adequate for these things? Translation of what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 2 is this, who is up for the task? It's a rhetorical question. What Paul is saying is this, I'm not adequate, the Apostle Paul says, for what God has called me to do. I'm not up for the task. 
I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me, you know, I was, I was headed in this direction, but I, I came to a point, I realized just God wasn't in it. And I said, well, how do you know God wasn't in it? Because there were so many obstacles before me. Listen to this. Obstacles exist to prove to you that you can't do it. They don't exist to prove to you you shouldn't do it. Did I say that again? They, they exist to prove to you you can't do it, which is exactly how God wants you to feel. He wants you to look at the circumstances in your life and say to yourself, I can't do this. That doesn't mean he doesn't want you to do it. Listen, an obstacle is not evidence that God is not with you. It might be evidence that God is right with you and has you exactly where he wants you to be. You are utterly insufficient. The second reality is this. God is immeasurably able. Write that down. You are utterly insufficient. God is immeasurably able. Reality number two. Now, if you were to read this story over and over and over again, and I were to ask you this question, who's the key figure in the story, or what is the key figure in the story? If you read it three or four times, it would start to become clear. Because in 17 verses, there is one thing that is mentioned 13 times. 13 times in 17 verses is this. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Everything revolves around the Ark. And the ark symbolizes the very presence of God. And two times when it mentions the ark, it says the ark of the Lord, and then says this, the Lord of all the earth. Just emphasizing that this is not only the presence of a God, this is the presence of the God who is Lord of heaven and earth. You know why? Because it wants you to know that God is the hero of the story. That God is the one who is leading. That God is the one who is working wonders. That God is the one who is moving the people. It is God the one who does the miracle. This is God who is at the center of the story. I love how it says in verse 4, There shall be a distance between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Don't come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The reason they couldn't get near the ark is not because the ark resembled the holiness or, or showed us the holiness of God. That, that's not the point. He says the point. The point is this, because you don't know where you're going. <laughs> you've never been this way before. What does that mean? That means that you've got to look to the Lord because he's the one that's leading you. You don't even know where to go. The Lord is the one leading you. Then he says in verse Five, he says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. He is the wonder-working God. It says in verse 10, Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the inhabitants of the earth. God is clearly at the center of this story to prove to them that God is immeasurably able when they are utterly insufficient and inadequate. Remember at verse 15 when it talks about the time of harvest? You know, the time of harvest, this one worst possible moment to lead the people across is not just to show the people their inadequacy. It also exists to show them God's ability. God chooses the most difficult time so they know they can't do it on their own. He also chooses the most difficult time to show that God is able even in the most difficult circumstances. 
that whether it be the time of harvest or not, this is not a problem for God. God is able to part the Jordan at any time. It doesn't matter if it's the time of harvest or not. This is not a problem for God. So there's a weightiness to this on both sides. I can't do this, but God can. Now look at verse 16 very quickly. It's another seemingly meaningless detail. It says the waters come down from above and they stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and flowing down towards the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. You say, well, what, is it, what does that matter? Well, it matters because when you look at the geography of this, what it tells us is this is that we often have seen these pictures in Bible school of this raging river standing up in a heap on one side and another, and the people are kind of cramming through and barely making it while their shoulders are getting wet. What this tells us is this, is from the place in which it was parted here to the place in that it was parted there is 19 miles. 19 miles. From here to the campus of the University of Georgia is 13 miles. From here to Bethlehem, Georgia is 14 miles. From here to Jefferson is 17 miles. God parted the Jordan River 19 miles wide. And then it says twice in verse 17 that the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground and Israel passed over on dry ground. Those are not meaningless details. Those are details that show you that God is showing off. That even if he would have parted the seas and they would have walked through on muddy ground, that still would have been fine, but God doesn't do that. He separates the waters 19 miles wide, makes the ground completely dry as it has never been wet, and then leads his people across the Jordan River until they get to the other side, and there is no evidence that they were ever in water whatsoever. Why? To show them he's able. Because from this moment on, for the rest of their lives, they're going to need to be reminded that when they face circumstances in which they feel utterly inadequate, that God is able. I mean, when they stood on the shores of the Jordan River, they only had one thing. But the good news is this. It's the only thing they needed. They had God. That's it. It reminds me of Ephesians 3, 20, which says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, God wants his ability to be deep inside of your soul because there are going to come moments in your life when the only thing you have is God, and he wants you to know that that's enough. You are utterly insufficient. God is immeasurably able. Now listen to this. I, I think... I think that you know those two. I don't think I gave you any, any big news. I think just from life, you've become aware of your insufficiency. And I think you are aware, certainly even just from the word of God or other things you've seen of God's ability. I think the question this morning is this, how can I get my insufficiency and God's ability to meet up together so I experience the wonder-working God? Isn't that the question? Like, I want to see the wonder-working God. I want to see God in my life. I want to see God do something significant. So, so how, how does my insufficiency and God's ability match up together? And that's the third reality. 
The third reality is what brings these two things together so that you experience the wonder-working God. And it is this, write this down. Your believing activity matters. Your believing activity matters. You see, that river is not meant to immobilize them and make them feel defeated. That river is intended to make them trust and follow the Lord. They do come to a place in which they realize they are insufficient for the task, but at the same time, they are aware that God is able for the task, and their answer is not to be passive, but to join in with what God is doing. So this is, this is how I study these things. I take this, this chapter like this, and I read it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. All throughout the week, I'm just reading it and reading it, and all kinds of things are becoming clear. The most surprising thing to me is the amount of commands in Joshua 3. Because I think you think, here are the people and they can't do it, and so God just parts the sea and they go. But listen, this is all in response to their obedience. They are following the command of God. They are active in this process. We do have a role to play. And I've identified a a few activities that, that we must be engaged in that matter in this process. Can I plead with you to write these down? The first one is, is confidence. Confidence. Faith. Believing in God. Confidence in his ability. Look at verse 1. It says, Joshua rose early in the morning. Well, who cares? Why does that matter? Why do we need to know what time Joshua woke up? That seems to do nothing for the rest of the story. If Joshua would have woke up, woken up at 11, that doesn't change the story. Because here's what it says at the very first of the chapter. It says that Joshua is not scared. He is not defeated. He is not discouraged. He is not overwhelmed because discouraged, defeated people don't pop up early in the morning ready to face the day. That's what it tells us. It tells us Joshua knew what was ahead. He could hear the raging of the water, yet he was jumping up because he was ready to face the day. He was eager. He was ready. He was excited. He was prepared. He was ready for the day. Why? Because even in the midst of what seemed like an overwhelming circumstance, he was confident that God is able. I think a lot about Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It is both a declaration of truth and a choice. This is the day the Lord has made. I woke up today because God woke me up. He made this day and he put me in this day. Now in response, even in the midst of everything else, I will choose to rejoice in it. I will rejoice in it. Why? Because I believe the God who created this day and the God that woke me up for this day is the God that has something for me in this day. My life matters today. And even if this is the last day I have, this day matters. That is confidence that God has something for me. That mattered in their crossing the Jordan River. Not only their confidence, but their holiness. Their holiness mattered. Confidence and holiness That's verse five. Verse five is an amazing verse. God will do wonders among you. But here's an action. Consecrate yourselves. You know what that means? It means get pure. Be morally clean. So he says God's about to do wonders, but you have a responsibility. Be pure and holy before God. Now one of the things we're gonna discover here in just a few chapters is that there is nothing that stops the work of God more than impurity. 
because the people are gonna be moving and all of a sudden we're gonna get to Joshua 7 and we're gonna see just randomly a, a group of people seem to get defeated, the people of God who have, who have won every battle and you realize the reason they lost a battle and so many men died is because there was somebody that was hiding sin and his name was Achan. And it's just a little reminder that when you become impure, God will stop his wonder-working power. Do you, do you listen to me? Your holiness matters. Your purity matters. That some of you are stuck and unable to move forward and get a breakthrough in an area in which God wants you to get a breakthrough because of unconfessed and undealt with sin. It matters. God will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourself. Be prepared. Confidence, holiness. And give the third one, fullness. Fullness. Over and over and over, it is the presence of God which is what is causing these things to happen. The great thing that we have as New Testament believers is we don't have God's presence among us, we have God's presence in us. There is no greater moment in which God's presence is among us than Jesus Christ himself coming to dwell among us. But listen, even he said in John 16, it is better that I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit comes and now you're not just around my presence, the very presence of God comes to be in you. And in John 14, he says this, when the presence of God comes to be in you by his spirit, greater works than the things I've done, you will do. What he's saying is this, he's saying be confident in what God is gonna do, be clean before the Lord, be filled with the spirit of God, which has to come after holiness. You've gotta be clean and empty before you can be filled. Confidence, holiness, fullness, and the last one is this, obedience. Obedience. Over and over. In verse three, he says, set out and, and follow me. Verse four, he says, do not come near. Four times he tells them, I want you to step in to the Jordan. Why, why does that matter? Why does it matter that they step in? Because it's just a small act of obedience that matters to God. It's just a small act of obedience. Are you willing to step into the Jordan as an act of faith, as an act of obedience, even though it seems unnecessary and doesn't seem to matter, but it's simply testing their obedience? And do you realize, listen, every moment of this story hinges on little small acts of obedience and confidence and holiness and fullness. And that's the point of the story. The point of the story is that when our utter insufficiency is joined together with our believing activity, it is then that God demonstrates his wonder-working ability. Do you see that? When our utter insufficiency meets up with our believing activity, that's when we see God in his wonder-working ability. We can't do it, but we do what we know we're called to do. We walk in obedience. We seek holiness. We seek to be filled with the Spirit. We're confident in God, and at some point, God comes through. This starts with our response to the gospel. You know, all, all throughout the New Testament and as New Testament believers, the Jordan River is always that thing that has to be crossed in order to get to heaven. You, you notice this a lot in old gospel songs, that once I get to the other side of the Jordan, then I'll meet the Lord. And it's a reminder of this, when you stand on this side of the Jordan, meaning trying to get through death on the other side, you, you face 
the raging rapids of God's wrath. And it is impossible for you in your own strength or by your own good works to get on the other side of it. So what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the wrath of the rapids for us. And when Jesus Christ comes, he parts the seas and allows you to go over, not because of you, but because of him. But in order for that to be applied to your life, you must trust him. You must step out in faith and choose to follow him. And that is the picture of every other moment of the rest of your life. Every other moment of the rest of your life. Now listen, I know, I know we've gone a little late this morning. Let me, let me, let me share with you one last thing in closing. I, I, I want to show you practically how this works. A friend of mine came to visit a while back, and he's a pastor in another state, and we used to minister together in we're sitting in the car, and he was about to leave, and he said to me, hey, Josh, just tell me what's in your spirit. Just listen, look at me for a few minutes. He said, Josh, what's, what's in your spirit? Like, what is God stirring in you? And I said, you know what? I, I just am so hungry for a work of God. Like, God has just called me to a, a new season of fasting and praying, and I'm just so excited about what God is doing here, and I long to see God just do some significant work at Prince Avenue Baptist. I just, I want in this moment of my life to be really used of him. And he said, that's great. And he said, can I just encourage you with one thing? He said, in the midst of praying for all the big things you want to see God do, be careful not to miss all the little things that God is doing. In your prayers for the big miracles, don't miss all the little miracles. And i got to tell you, I needed that because I'm a big miracle guy, right? That's, I love that kind of stuff. I want to see big things happen. But listen, sometimes God doesn't do the big things, but the little things are just as miraculous. You know, it wasn't just miraculous that they got to the other side of the sea. It was miraculous that after camping three days, they were willing to go to the other side of the river. That's miraculous in and of itself. Listen, it's, it's miraculous when in one day we see 37 people baptized. It's also miraculous when Jack Monahan, who was baptized this morning, comes here to visit because a friend invited him. And after about four weeks of just hearing the simple preaching of God, gives his life to Christ. That's just as miraculous as 37 people in one day. It's a miracle. Now listen to this. It would be a miracle of God if your one comes to Christ, wouldn't it? Anytime someone gets saved. You know what's also a miracle? If you share the gospel with your one. I'm not kidding. What a miracle it would be if you overcame your fears and this wasn't everybody else's project, but it was your project and you stepped out in faith and had the courage to present the gospel. Let's celebrate that miracle because it's a miracle. Listen, it would be a miracle if God healed you of that sin, that besetting sin. If he just delivered you, you know what would also be a miracle is if today you could defeat it. Just today. Just today, you could walk in victory over that. That would be a miracle. And it may be God's will not to deliver you from that forever, but just to make you fight it today and win. It would be a miracle if God healed your disease. It would be a miracle. It would also be a miracle if God allowed you to persevere through it with a joyful heart until the day he takes you home. It would be a miracle if God healed your marriage. It would be a miracle. It would also be a miracle if God let you stay in that marriage serving and being humble and sacrificing and being honest, all of that is a miracle. It would be a miracle if God healed you from a sense of depression, despondency. It would also be a miracle if today God allowed you to walk through that with just a little bit of hope and a little bit of joy that he gives you moment by moment. 
Listen to me. God is a great storyteller. And he's writing your story. And the details matter. Every detail of your life matters. Every moment of obedience matters. What God calls you to do right now matters. Every one of it matters because the glory is in your response to the details. I plead with you. Your desire to see God do all kinds of things in your life. Step out in believing activity. And just trust him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.